Okay, so Peter, today you're speaking on our inheritance mm-hmm. in God. What, 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 why is, what's sort of behind that? Why do you feel the Lord's really laid that on your heart? I was thinking about what would God have us know when I was asked to speak? What would God have Portswood Church know? And in the back of my mind was, well, if Jesus was to appear and say, tell the church this, what would he say? And almost immediately the thought came into my mind, but he doesn't need to, we already have his word. And as I contemplated this, the book of Ephesians kept going through my mind, and I kept looking for various things to say, and I kept coming back to Ephesians. Because Ephesians is the one book in which Paul doesn't address a specific issue or look at a specific heresy and try and bring people back. Ephesians is the one book where he's telling the church, carry on, be encouraged, see what God has done for you. And that's what I would like to tell you this morning. I would like, really, for you to understand where God has taken you from and what he's bringing you into. Thank you. Let's pray for Peter, shall we, as he speaks to us. Father, we thank you for uh, this uh, passion, this burden that you've laid on Peter's heart uh, for this morning. And I pray now for a fresh anointing of your spirit on his words, that he would speak with clarity and with power. And Father, I pray for us as we receive these words, that our ears would be attentive to what the spirit is saying through Peter. That our hearts would be open to receive what you want to pour into us today. Lord, that you would touch and change us by your spirit. That you would reveal more of yourself to us. Not simply that we might marvel at that, though we would indeed marvel at that. But Lord, that it might change us change who we are and what we do. So we lay ourselves before you now and we pray for Peter as he speaks. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak because your servants are listening. Amen. Amen. Peter. So, as I said, I wanted to look at something which we haven't really looked at recently. I wanted to look at our inheritance. There are many reasons why we come here to church. Perhaps there are many reasons why we come here to church this morning. And if we were to honestly answer the question, why are we here today, I suspect that we'd get many different answers. So without without any reference at all to the recent belonging survey, I suspect that we'd probably get answers such as, Well, it's expected of me. Technology. (laughs) Ah, there we go. So why are we here? No? Well, we get answers like, it's expected of me, or I have duties here. My friends are all here, 
Perhaps I'm here because somebody brought me here. Or perhaps I'm here because I like the music. So I thought, what can I say specifically to you, and if there's anybody who secretly would admit to that, what can I say that's going to strengthen you, strengthen your faith, strengthen your resolve? What can I say that will encourage you? What can I say that will challenge you? I was particularly struck by Paul's writing to the Ephesians, as I said. And I read through it and I thought, wow, this really is what we need. I really encourage you to go home and read it yourself. But I was looking particularly at his opening statements. His opening statements from Ephesians 1. And he says, I keep asking that the God of our Father, sorry, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit and wisdom, spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Understand what Paul is saying to the Ephesians here. He wants them to know what they have been saved into. It seems really important to Paul that they understand the hope of their calling. Verse 18. They need to know the riches of his glory and the exceeding greatness of his power. So I'm asking today, do we know this? Have we ever really considered it? for ourselves, rather than just reading it on the pages of a book. If we were to rework the original question, why are you here, to what makes you a Christian, I suspect we'd get some answers like, well, I'm a Christian because I believe in God. Or, I'm a Christian because I was christened. Because I prayed a prayer once. Or, my parents went to church, so therefore I go to church. Now, I've heard that a number of times, and whenever I hear it, I can still remember my old pastor, coincidentally also called John, back in Zimbabwe, thumping the pulpit saying, just because a mouse was born in a biscuit tin doesn't make it a lemon cream. <laughs> and yes, for many years, I carried around a mental image just like that. What? but I think it makes the point well. A Christian is not somebody who believes in one God. A Christian is not somebody who goes to church. A Christian is not somebody whose good works outweigh their bad works. A Christian is not somebody who is perfect. Romans chapter 3 tells us categorically, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Who is he talking about? Everyone. He's being fairly emphatic, isn't he? 
So let's look at what a Christian is not before we go a little further. This may be a little controversial, but we'll see. Being a Christian is not a choice. You cannot decide to be saved any more than a drowning man can decide to be saved. A child cannot decide to be adopted by his adoptive parents. If nothing else, there's a legal framework that needs to be followed, and it's the same with God. It's a commitment, mainly by the other party. And as many of you know, we've recently had that beautifully demonstrated here in this church. The thing is, in our natural state, we are enemies of God. Every sin offends him. Every sin causes separation between us and a holy God. That offense has to be acknowledged and dealt with. But let's understand this. If God is just, he must act with justice. Because he is perfect in all his ways, he must act with absolute and complete justice. He must punish every sin. But he is also a God of mercy. Let's look briefly at Colossians 1, 21-23. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So simply put, in order to be a Christian, you have to be reconciled to God on his terms. This is the doctrine of atonement. But catchphrases and code words and Christianese doesn't really help in today's age. We live in a postmodern world. What does that mean? I sometimes think it means we make it up as we go along. The postmodern world doesn't actually recognize this concept of being lost. Like many other things that have been redefined so as to avoid being left out, they've changed the meaning of salvation. Today, salvation means throwing off your old shackles, finding out accepting who you really are. Hmm. Biblical salvation is simpler than that. It's more direct. It is being released from the consequence of condemnation by a righteous judge. It's like standing before a judge, guilty beyond all doubt of a serious crime, and being hit with a fine so large that you have no ability to pay it. You can't even fundraise for it. 
essentially you're doomed. And then suddenly the judge's own son steps forward. He waves his credit card and there you have it. His payment on your account. I beg your pardon. Yes. His payment on your account. He will pay your fine. Now, will the court allow it? As long as the judge is convinced that the account holder is good for the payment and has no outstanding convictions himself, if you are willing for the son to pay it, the court will accept the payment. Please understand, this is the basis of what comes. Salvation is a legal framework. God's laws are absolute. We are judged from God's point of view, not society's. And God is absolutely holy. Having done something contrary to God's law, even once, is all that it takes to make us a sinner. That's all that it takes to separate us from God. Think about it. How many banks do you have to rob before you are called a bank robber? Being sorry, it's not enough. But, Your Honor, I'm not going to do it anymore. Well, that's not really the issue, is it? You try saying that to a high court judge and see what he says to you. Transgression, breaking the law, it's a legal fact, and you are convicted on facts. Just as Jesus' death and his resurrection was both a fact and a legal transaction, he, the sinless one, identified with our sin. He willingly endured the sarcasm the insults, the beatings, the lashings, and crucifixion. Nailed to that cross, humiliated, alone, separated from his father in your place. Rightfully, his death should have been yours. Now, we know that a righteous judge must punish transgression. He cannot turn a blind eye or he's not righteous. A righteous judge must convict if there are no extenuating circumstances, but he can show mercy. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death that's being cut off from God. Scripture doesn't talk of annihilation in the Bible. It speaks of hell as a real place. Why are people so uncomfortable when we talk about hell? Could it be that if we talk about it, it's an admission that we believe in it? And if we believe in it, well, then we've got to do something about it. And I can say this, being British, we don't like to accept people. We don't like to upset others. And so we've, we have mixed emotions, really mixed feelings, because 
you shouldn't shout at a blind man on a construction site, you might upset him. Gehenna, or hell. It's not Satan's kingdom, we know this. It's a place of punishment for Satan. But those who reject Jesus' sacrificial payment, they will share in Satan's judgment. That's eternal anger outside of time, separation from God. No reprieve, no escape. Your sin ever before you, playing on your conscience, justifying God's eternal rejection. But those who have acknowledged their sin, requested forgiveness, acknowledging their own ability, inability to pay, and therefore trusting wholly and solely in the righteous judge's son's ability to pay, they can stand in forgiveness. They will be welcomed into the judge's family at the son's request. And therefore, having been redeemed, and I mean that in every sense of the word, we are welcomed in as part of the family. Let's look at what Hebrews says about it. The author of Hebrews says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering on the cross. That's his suffering, not ours. Both the one who makes men holy, Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Who's he talking about? Us. Jesus has brought us before his father and called us his brothers. As part of his family, we will spend our eternity with him. Grace will be ever before us. His love always in the now, in the present tense. Sin wiped away. There will be nothing to spoil our relationship with God. It's been wiped away. Jesus' blood of purchase has made us righteous in God's sight in the same way that the blood of the sacrificial lamb covered Moses' ark, covering the Ten Commandments inside the law. Our sacrificial lamb, Jesus' blood, covers the law, the brokenness, the broken commandments and the sin in our heart. We can live in complete acceptance. Jesus has already accepted us. Understand that he has accepted us. We have nothing to prove to him. Do you get the importance of that? Through the blood of his son, he has accepted us. 
Because of Jesus' payment, we have a value. God put a high price on your heads. The life of his own son. Jesus did not die because we were worth something. Romans 3 tells us we have all become worthless. But because such a high price has been paid for who you are in Christ, who am I or anyone else to condemn what Christ has already justified? Jesus has already provided mediation with the Father on our behalf for our salvation. And it has been given. He freely calls us brothers. You have every right to stand before him, our mutual father, as a son or as a daughter, and speak directly to him. See, we did already. But there is a danger of becoming arrogant and abusing our position, our our inheritance. Esau was so blasé about his inheritance, the older twin, that he sold it to Jacob for a pot of stew because he didn't see the point in waiting when he, could, when he was hungry now. So he sold his inheritance. And years later, when he cried foul, his father Isaac upheld the transaction as a legal transaction between brothers. So let me encourage you. Don't take your inheritance lightly. Don't let present, temporary things like maybe hunger, what kind of hunger, rob you of a future inheritance. It's precious. Apostle John says in his, inher- in his epistle, But this is the confidence that we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Please note, there's an important proviso there. And I know that some of you know this. God gives us what we need according to his will. He knows what we need better than we do. When Israel crossed the Jordan to claim their inheritance, God didn't just hand it all to them on a silver plate. They had to fight to take possession of it. God was giving them experience of the real world. But when they fought in his name, they won every battle. Romans 8:28 says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and record according to his purpose. Like Israel, God uses the occasional enemy counterattack to teach us something. Sometimes it's obedience, sometimes it's humility, and sometimes it's to teach other people from our mistakes. Just as a father will discipline and raise his children into maturity. Like them, God gives us experience in the real world because although we're not of the world, we are in it. But we too 
can apply God's promise of Deuteronomy 31.6 to our lives. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified of them. That's the Canaanites. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And God specifically told this to Israel as they were about to go in and take their inheritance. God provided protection as his people took Canaan, their inheritance. And God watches over us and protects us as we take possession of our inheritance. God's purpose was not to allow Israel in, give it all to them, and then leave them to get on with it. His plan was that Israel would live in the land and work the land alongside him. It's much like the prodigal son's father allowed him to have his inheritance while he was still living. But instead of working the land alongside his father, he ran off and he squandered it on enriching himself. This was extremely countercultural to the Middle Eastern mind. It still is. The purpose of an inheritance was to provide for the family and the household after a death. Our inheritance can be no different. Our inheritance is an eternal, eternal, personal fellowship with him. For he died, hence our inheritance. But he rose. He is still alive. We can have fellowship with him. We can have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Now part of this kind of fellowship Part of this kind of inheritance is to provide the tools to do the job. God has promised us the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. The Holy Spirit enables us to help our family, the church, this church, in various ways. He has given some to be apostles, He has given some to be prophets, some to be teachers. But he has also given others the gifts such as wisdom, knowledge, gifts of healing, discernment of spirits, etc., etc., all for the common good, the tools to help our inheritance. These gifts are not always spectacular. Sometimes they are simple, such as serving in the church, generosity, Encouraging others. Our inheritance is one of peace with God, fellowship with his people, safety and provision within his household. Occasionally bad things do happen. But with God as our father and head of the family, we have peace no matter what happens around us. We have a relationship with his son, our brother, the first of many brothers. We know that our Father provides all that is needed. We know that he provides all that's needed at the right time. 
He provides spiritual protection. Occasionally, he provides physical protection too. And if our personal safety is threatened, as it is to our brothers and our sisters in Iraq and Syria at this time and many other places in the world, we pray for them. We weep. We mourn for them and their families. But we know that we will see them again at our Father's side. I'm well aware that these are all just analogies of what it will be like. I'm well aware that I've just brushed the surface. But I'd like to leave you with this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, As it is written, No eye has seen, no eye no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. And if I can leave you with some homework today, go back and read Ephesians, particularly chapter 3. Thank you.